Welcome back. Welcome to Cry Week. Hey. Um, so this week we're going to cover real estate crimes since so many people are buying new homes. So this week we're going to cover real estate crimes since so many people are buying new homes. Everyone's um, doing it. Garcelle, Dorit. With her in-home theater. Yeah. You want to go watch the movie in the theater? Beefy Navajo. Beefy Navajo. Um, and Denise has a new home too. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, Everyone does. Yeah. So we're going to cover real estate agent crimes today. And who knew that it was such a dangerous profession? I didn't. I had no idea. And looking into this, it was so crazy. I like ended up going into like a little rabbit hole of knowledge. There's this National Association of Realtors website, which obviously, you know, you have to get your license and all that stuff. And it has all the information on how to become a realtor and successful, blah, blah, blah. But it also has this whole giant page and all these resources on like webinars and articles and apps and all these things you can do to stay safe because apparently there's a rise in crimes against real estate agents and it's really scary and crazy and I had no idea. But it makes sense. Like, you know, you're meeting someone you don't know to show them a home. And yeah, it does make sense. I just never thought about it. But I mean, I feel like I don't know the statistic of how many real estate agents are women, but I feel like a large majority are. And yeah, yeah they're home alone or they're at a home alone. Um, that's And like they meet people, like if they're doing like a private showing, you meet people that, so I think it's a very vulnerable position to be in. I just never thought about it. Yeah, me either. So good thing Tam got cut fitness now and isn't showing houses anymore. We'd be worried about her. But we'd make Eddie go with her. Yeah. <laughs> Carrier security. <laughs> um, do you want to go first or me? Um, I can go first. Okay. So we were looking into real estate agents and there were so many different cases to cover, which is really sad, you know, but it did seem like a lot of real estate agents get murdered or um, a lot of things happened to them and they were all really interesting cases. It was all really sad. But I kind of took a different approach on this. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I'm obsessed with serial killers. So I decided to do a case on a serial killer who posed as a real estate agent. Ooh. Um, I'm also going to send you this link really quick, just for your personal viewing. There's like a picture of him on it. And he's such a cutie. Ooh. <laughs> Bet you didn't think I was going that's yeah. with it, huh? Taking lots of twists and turns. <laughs> so I like to keep it good keep in your toes. <laughs> so today's case will be on Todd Colep. He was born on March 7th, 1971. And if you listen to our case last week, we did it on Zodiac Killers. And the most common sign among Zodiac killers is Pisces. And that is what our boy Todd is. Ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> right? So he was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, but he was raised in South Carolina and Arizona. His parents divorced when he was two years old, and he went to live with his mother, who quickly remarried just the following year after his parents had gotten a divorce. Apparently, his new stepdad was really cruel to him, and 
which led him to lead a less than ideal childhood. In grade school, Todd was really troubled child and he began to be, or he was known to be aggressive toward other children and he would destroy their toys and property at his grade school. When he was just nine years old, he started counseling and his childhood therapist would later go on trial and describe him as an explosive and preoccupied with sexual content. It's like a little nine-year-old boy. Gross. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also started shooting animals with his BB gun and he would put Clorox bleach in his fish bowl and yeah. mysteriously wonder why they would die all the time. And his mother finally found out that he was putting Clorox in them. Um, he also frequently told his psychologist that he wanted to go move with his dad, who he no one had heard from since they had divorced um, you know, over seven years ago. Todd was sent to a psychiatric hospital in Georgia, where he spent three and a half months due to his inability to get along with children. And eventually, in 1983, Todd was just 12 years old. He was able to get in contact with his biological father, who agreed to let him live with him in Arizona. So he moved out there and began working for local jobs, and pretending to be his father, because obviously he was only 12 and... He wasn't legally allowed to work at that time, so he just pretended to be his dad and different places would hire him to do kind of odd jobs. Um, his dad didn't spend a lot of time with him and had a lot of girlfriends, but he did pass along one of his hobbies, which was making bombs and making things blow up. Hmm. Yeah, you know, good father-daughter, good father-son bonding. Casual. Make, making things blow up. Um. <laughs> So he barely paid attention to Todd. So he this enraged him and he requested to move back with his mom. His mom had apparently separated from his stepdad. So he was wanting to move back with her, but she was very hesitant to take him back since his dad had stated that Todd, Todd was only capable of feeling anger. So she was super trying to stall it and not letting him move back right away. So on November 25th, 1986, Todd was 15 when he kidnapped a 14-year-old girl in Tempe, Arizona, where he was living with his father still. He threatened her with a gun, brought her to his father's house. He wasn't there, obviously. Um, he tied her up, taped her mouth shut, and raped her. He then walked her home and threatened to kill her younger siblings if she ever told anyone. But she did tell her parents and he was arrested and charged with kidnapping, sexual assault, and committing dangerous crimes against children. He pled guilty to kidnapping and the other charges were dropped. So he was sentenced to a 15 years in prison where he was required to become a registered sex offender. And he was just a child at the time. He was only 14 or 12 himself, so, or 15. Um, the courts had done tests on Todd. He was still a minor and they found that he was very bright and he had an above IQ, an above average IQ of 118. And he was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. The judge found Todd very bright and thought he would advance academically, but behaviorally and emotionally, he thought he was very dangerous and would never be rehabilitated. When his counselor took the stand, he conveyed a very similar message and felt that he said that he, Todd felt that the world owed him something and that he would do anything to get what he wanted. 
So he was sentenced to prison, and during this time, he had fairly good behavior. Beside one incident of violence, um, he was released. So he was released after 14 years in August of 2001. And during this his 14 years, he attended and graduated the Central Arizona College, where he got his BS in computer science. He then moved back to South Carolina when he was released, where his mother lived, and got a job as a graphic designer for a company in Spartanburg. He began studying at Greenville Tech College in 2003, and then he transferred to the University of South Carolina the following year and graduated in 2008 with his Bachelor of Science in Business Administration and Marketing. But... During his time in studying, he had a little side hobby, and he decided to um, get into motorcycles, and when he went to a, motor, a superbike motor shop in Chesney, South Carolina, he had bought a motorcycle, and apparently he tried to return it, and he was laughed at and told that, made fun of, that he should learn how to ride it instead of trying to return it for his money. Mm-hmm. So this really angered him, and apparently he came back several days later and shot four people to death inside the shop. Eek. Right. The, he, the victims were identified as the owner, Scott Ponder, who was 30, a service manager, Brian Lucas, who was 30, a mechanic, Chris Sherbert, and a bookkeeper, Beverly Guy, who was 52, and the owner's mother, who Mm. was also shot as well. This case went unsolved until 2016, when Todd was finally arrested and caught and confessed to this murder. Until then, it remained unsolved, but apparently he was disgruntled. um, But the employee who had originally mocked him for not knowing how to... um, Work the bike was not even present at the time of the shooting. Oh right. Despite being a felon and a registered sex offender, Todd was able to apply for his real estate license. And on June 30th, 2006, he was granted it after lying about being charged with a felony and with being a sex offender. They don't do a background check? Um, apparently they do, but not if you check the box. Oh my God. Apparently only if you check the box that you should. I'm going to take your word for it. Oh, my goodness. And this is 2006. Like, we're alive. Yeah. We're <laughs> well alive there. Wow. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. So after he got his real estate license, he built a large firm that had dozens of uh, real estate agents and brokers working under him. He became recognized as a top-selling agent and became very well-known. Um and became very well off. He got his private pilot license and had a large number of properties and a lot of land in several different states. Um, one of Todd's clients remembered him as extremely outgoing and professional, but noted he often made sexual innuendos and frequently talked about firearms. Another client recalled that he was really angry and condescending towards her. So it probably depended on the sex, how he treated you. One of his employees stated that he frequently watched porn even while he was at work. 
Um, and Todd became a man of habit and frequently went to the Waffle House in a nearby town of Roebuck, where he would sexually harass the waitresses, so much so that the male cook began taking his order. Unfortunately, this would not spare one of the waitresses, Megan Lee McCaw, who would soon become one of Todd's victims. On August 31st, 2016, Kayla Brown, a 30-year-old, and her boyfriend, Charles David Carver, a 32-year-old, went missing after they were last seen cleaning one of Todd's residence. Charles was later found on um, Todd's property, and he had died of multiple gunshot wounds to the head. Kayla's friends grew really suspicious after she had gone missing, but there was an odd post on her Facebook stating that she was on vacation when in reality, everyone in her family and her life knew that she was not. So this clued detectives in that there was something foul at play and that's obviously someone had taken her. On November 3rd, investigators traced a couple, the couple's last known cell phone signals and the had apparently last pinged on Todd's property. And so they had traced it down right to where a metal storage container, where is the last ping that Kayla's phone had alerted and police went there. And when they opened the metal storage container, they found Kayla alive and chained to a wall inside the container. Oh my God. It was also on the same property where her boyfriend's body was found. When they interviewed Kayla, she stated that Todd's mother was in on it. She had witnessed, um, she had witnessed Todd shooting her boyfriend and tying her up, and said that if she pisses her uh, pisses him off, then he's going to kill her too. She also stated that Todd would check on her frequently and say the same thing that if he if she pisses him off, then he's going to kill her as well. He would threaten her and take her to the graves of his other victims to try and deter her from escaping. Um, when police be- continued to search this property, they found a bunch of incriminating evidence in the house. And they also found two additional bodies on the property who would later be identified as the waitress at the Waffle House, Megan Lee McCaw, and her husband, Joe. On November 7th, Todd Culp was arrested and he confessed to the bike shop killing, shooting and to killing the couple whose bodies they found on his property. Um, in exchange for allowing him to talk to his mother and give her a photograph and transfer all his money to a friend's college fund, um, he confessed to all these killings. And on May 26, 2017, which is my birthday, (laughs) he pled guilty to seven counts of murder, two counts of kidnapping, and one count of sexual assault. And he got seven life sentences without possibility of parole. And he is currently serving his sentence in the Board River Correctional Facility in Columbia, South Carolina. Wow. I actually looked up his, up, looked him in like the inmate search record and it said like his job is like the warden keeper assistant. And so I was wondering what that is. And per Google and a Reddit forum, it says that it's like a porter, which is again, per a Reddit forum, like the correction officers, bitch. Really? Yeah. Mm. So. I, I can't believe that's his job. Right? Awful. Like, what a piece of shit. Why does he get to, like, 
live a high life in jail. That was a good case. Thank you. Um, so mine, um, I watched a Dateline episode, Love my favorite, and, um, it was about Beverly Carter and she was a well-known real estate agent in Little Rock, Arkansas. And she was, uh, well-known, but also really good at her job. And in 2013, she did 12 million in sales. So for 2013 and in Arkansas, that's a lot of money. (laughs) Um, and she became connected to many of her clients and would go on to become great friends with them. She went to some weddings and baby showers and kept in contact with most of her clients that she sold homes to. She was married to a man named Carl and they met when she was 16 and he was 19. They got married shortly after and they had three children together, all boys, and then went on to have six grandchildren. Um, The real estate office where she worked was with three other women who she considered her best friends. And so they worked together, went out together, um, and were very involved in each other's lives. Um, And they actually had a secret code in the office for safety purposes. So if they suspected something was wrong or if they felt like they were in danger themselves, they used this code word red folder. So they would say something like, I have the red folder for the house on 123 Main Street or something. And that would supposed to be like a tip off to their coworkers that something wasn't right. So in September 2014, Beverly went to show a house not far from her own house to a couple that was planning to pay all cash. So initially, I guess she was like tired that day and it was like later in the afternoon, but the couple had said they were going to pay all cash. So she was like, this might be like an easy sale and a quick sale. So that should be a red flag. Yeah. So she went to show them the house. She told her husband where she was going, gave him the address and said that she would be home shortly, but hours had passed and Carl hadn't heard from Beverly. So he ended up going to the house that she was showing and when he got to the house, her car was there with her purse inside, but Beverly was nowhere to be found and no one else was at the house. Carl immediately called the police. Um, and then he also called one of their adult sons who had also not heard from his mom, but he tried to like reassure his dad and say like, things are going to be okay. Like she's probably just at the office. Um, so the dad and son drove over to the real estate office, but no one was there. So they ended up calling her coworkers and they hadn't heard from her either, but thought that maybe she had gone to show the couple some other houses in the area that were also for sale. So the coworkers were able to check the lock boxes that are on the front doors of homes for sale, but it had showed that no one had accessed them that night. So this caused more concern. The family all met back at the house that was for sale. Uh, And at 1 a.m., Carl received multiple text messages from Beverly stating, I'm sorry, my phone has been dead and I just got it back on. Then shortly after, her girlfriends and coworkers started to receive texts too. And one of the texts to her coworkers stated, hey, my phone is acting up. What did you need? The friend had a strange feeling. And so she responded with their office code word and replied with, just wondering if you put the red folder back on my desk. No response from Beverly, so the coworker followed it up with, well, did you? And still no response. So at this point, her coworker and the rest of her family and friends were very concerned. So police searched the house, but because it was a vacant house, there was no electricity, so it was pitch black. They used, and it was the middle of the night at this point, it was 1 a.m. They used flashlights to search, and they didn't see anything out of the ordinary inside the home, but they did see tire tracks near the front door that seemed out of place. 
They spoke with one of the neighbors of the house for sale and the neighbor stated that they saw a black vehicle pull up to the house and then around 20 to 30 minutes later saw a thin white dark haired male near the house. Along with the purse that was in the car, detectives found a notebook with real estate and client information in it. The detective saw an email and a phone number next to the listing of the house that was for sale and she was showing, but he didn't call it immediately. The detective stated that he thought that Beverly was likely being held against her will and he needed to be calculated with her next moves. Hundreds of people came out the following day to search for Beverly um, and one of her coworkers stated that Beverly had been in contact with the couple she was supposed to show, supposed to show the house to, contact with them for a few days prior. And she stated that Beverly initially had some reservations about showing it because it was a man that had contacted her, but he had assured Beverly that his wife would be there with him. And Beverly even spoke with the wife on the phone and she stated that she would be there at the showing. Um, so this kind of put Beverly at ease and she decided to do the showing. So the case was all over the local news and Carl went on asking for the safe return of his wife. But some people were suspicious of Carl, including one of the detectives on the case. He called Carl in for questioning and he found out that the couple was having financial issues, past infidelities, and on one instance, he actually hit Beverly when she tried to stop him from driving drunk. Um, but he tried to say this was all in the past and that they have, they, they're in a really good place right now and that he wasn't a part of this. So the detective let Carl go, but he was still suspicious. The detective continued on with the investigation and went back to the notebook that had been um, in the car. And he researched the email and phone numbers that were listed next to the house for sale, but it turns out both of those were fake. Beverly's cell phone service carrier was able to retrieve photos from her phone that were taken on that same day that she went missing. And there was, there was several inside of the home that was, she was showing. So detectives then received warrants to start investigating the phone numbers and emails Beverly had been in contact with on her phone and found that the real names of the couple she had been in contact um, were Aaron Lewis and Crystal Lowry. Police were able to locate their home and began a surveillance operation. Shortly after beginning the surveillance, they saw a man come out of the house that matched the description of the man the neighbor had seen at the vacant house. But he saw detectives in their car and he sped sped off and actually crashed. He was taken to the hospital and was going to be given an MRI and police were in the waiting room. But Aaron decided to make a run for it while he was being treated at the hospital. So police sent his photo to the media and they blasted it all over the television, all the local news. Um, and then two men that work at a mortgage company in town who knew Beverly from working with her on home sales were discussing the disappearance in their office and they saw Aaron Lewis walk by the front of their office. So one of the men called 911 and the other went out to the bus stop where the man was and made small talk with him about the bus routes to confirm that it was Aaron and it was. Um, so the mortgage broker went back into the office and Aaron went into a subway, subway sandwich shop nearby. Um, but someone else in the parking lot yelled out, I think that's him. And it obviously spooked him and he ran off to a nearby apartment complex. The mortgage broker and some others started chasing him, and then police were on the scene. He had run into an apartment and jumped out the second story of a window and was taken into custody. Aaron told police that he had kidnapped Beverly for money and had research, researched her on the internet prior to contacting her. Um, he confirmed the story that her coworkers had said that Beverly wasn't comfortable about meeting with just him at the house and that he got his wife on the phone to say that she would be there. But he states he showed up to the house alone and made excuse, an excuse as to why his wife couldn't be there. 
He stated that he had asked Beverly to take photos on her phone to send his wife. So that explained why those photos were on um, her phone that police had found. He told police that when they got to the top of the stairs, he pulled out a flashlight taser and told Beverly that she was being kidnapped. He stated that the last time he saw Beverly, though, was with a man named Trevor, someone that he used to live with. He stated that he had also received a recording of Beverly from Trevor, and it stated, Carl, it's Beverly. I just wanted to let you know that I'm okay. I haven't been hurt. Just do what he says, and please don't call the police. If you call the police, it could be bad. Just want you to know I love you very much. Police stated that they still didn't know if Beverly was alive since this was not a live audio. And Aaron stated that he would take police to the last place that he saw Beverly alive with Trevor, which was around 30 miles away. But when police got to the location, no one was inside and they don't believe she was ever there. Police were frustrated and Aaron told them of another location about 35 miles away from there um, that Beverly was. So again, police go to look for Beverly in this new location, but no one was there. And there was again, no evidence that she was ever there. Police were obviously frustrated with Aaron at this point for continuing to lie to them. Police then contacted Trevor, the man that Aaron claimed to be involved in the kidnapping, and he was assigned to the Little Rock Air Force Base. They brought him in for questioning, but he had denied any involvement, and police were able to verify his alibi with the Air Force Base, and he was on site working the day of Beverly's disappearance, so he was dismissed from the interview. Police then talked with Aaron again, and at this point, Beverly had been missing for four days. The detectives asked him about the cement plant that he recently worked at, and the detective asked him point blank if Beverly was there, and Aaron looked up and just gave a strange look back to detectives. They went to the cement plant but did not find her alive, but instead saw an elbow sticking up from a shallow grave, and it was her body. Aaron was charged with murder and kidnapping, and his wife, Crystal, was charged um, as his accomplice. Both pleaded not guilty, and when reporters asked him questions while he was being put into a police car, one asked why Beverly, and he responded with, she was a rich broker. So that obviously did not match up with his not guilty plea. He told reporters that anything that had happened with Beverly was an accident and that it was a sexual hookup gone wrong, and she had willingly met him at the house for sale. The DA was having nothing of this story, and the DA made a deal with Crystal to testify against her husband and plead guilty to murder and kidnapping and get a reduced sentence of 30 years. Crystal testified that money was the motivation and she is the one that suggested a real estate agent. She stated that she was in class at nursing school when Aaron had kidnapped Beverly and she received a photo text from Aaron of Beverly bound in the back of his car. She states that when she got home from class, Aaron was at their home and she and he had locked Beverly inside their bathroom and he then told Crystal that he forgot to get her purse from the car. He went back to get it, but police were already on the scene and even made contact with Aaron, but a description of the suspect wasn't out at that point, so they didn't know that he fit the description. Because Beverly was in the bathroom, she had seen Crystal's medication bottle with Crystal's real name on it and the couple decided that she had seen too much and they needed to kill her. Aaron put her back in the car and drove her to the cement plant where he used to work, and prosecutors state that he then duct taped her mouth and nose and let her suffocate. The defense argument stated that Beverly was leading a secret life and not having sex with Aaron, but rather with Crystal, and that she accidentally died during rough sex. The defense lawyer tried to argue that Beverly had made bad judgment in the past, driving an expensive car but had no money, also getting expensive plastic surgeries like a boob job, and this was just another... Um, poor decision on her part to partake in relations with this couple. 
But the defense lawyer couldn't argue away the recording that Aaron had played for the police of Beverly stating that she had been kidnapped. When Aaron took the stand, the prosecution grilled him on the audio and he told the jury that she that he created it himself and synthesized her voice. Um, obviously, no one believed this. And the jury only deliberated for an hour and the verdict came back and they found Aaron Lewis guilty on all counts and he was given two life sentences. Wow. Yeah. That was a good case. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. I thought the husband was going to be involved because I think it him. Yeah, it always they are, but he wasn't. So go Carl. Okay. That was good. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to us. Yeah, you can catch us on our Instagram at you had me at Bravo. Or our website, you had me at Bravo Podcast.com. And we will see you next week or talk to you next week for our Bravo recap. Talk to you next week. Bye.